So let me ask you a question. Do you remember where you were when the Space Challenger went down on January 28, 1986? Remember what you were doing when the OJ verdict came down? Or how about when the Boston Marathon bombings happened on April 15, 2013? How sure are you of your answers about where you were and what you were doing during that time? You know, numerous studies have been done about these kinds of events, what we call flashbulb events. It's a, it's a dramatic event that is seared into our memories. A record is made in our heads of what we were doing when the event occurred. What do you think is the accuracy of our memories of these events? I mean, everyone assumes that memory is, you know, kind of like a video timestamp in our head. Bill Hurst and Liz Phelps from NYU got together and did a study on memory during 9-11. 3,246 subjects were asked from around the country, where were you, who were you with, and how did you feel? Now, participants were asked the same questions one year, two years, and ten years after the attacks. And just one year after 9-11, discrepancies already began to creep in. In fact, over time, 60% of the answers changed. Now, you would think that something like this would just be seared into our memory. We would have every detail down. Well, here's something else that's interesting. The confidence with which people think that they remember it accurately is sky high. Maybe it's because, you know, we think it it has something to do with character, you know, to remember 9-11. I mean, what kind of horrible person would it be not to remember those events and and everything that they were doing. We feel a responsibility, you know, to, to get it right. But people who were faced with their discrepancies, either through maybe a journal during, you know, shortly after it happened, and then a year or so later they were faced with that journal and they were describing something different 10 years later, every one of the people said, I don't know why I described it like then right after it happened, but obviously I had it wrong. But I'm right now. People generally have an overwhelming confidence about what they remember. I mean, our memory is not like, you know, a camera shot that we retrieve. It can get contaminated with with details and, and sequence. And this memory muddle is, it's common to everybody, right? Call it what you want, but it's It's common. Maybe it's a result of the fall. Who knows why? It got me to thinking about fatherhood and memory, how these two relate. And the reason is, is because most fathers I talk to, now not everyone, but I would say the the vast majority, don't exactly feel 100% confident about their marriage or about their fatherhood. I mean, even the best dads are like, yeah, you know, I'm all right. How many, how many men do you meet who are saying, yeah, I do a great job as a dad, or I'm a great husband? 
I don't know any dad that talks like that. Most men I know feel quite inadequate. And guess what? Their memory bank confirms it. And I'd like to suggest that our memory of fathering, and therefore the value that we put on ourselves as, as men because of that, may not be completely objective. It may not be completely accurate. In fact, chances are that the memory of our own father and of our own life might be a little tainted. Now, it sounds like maybe I'm setting you up to, you know, say, quit lying to yourself or that. No, that's not it at all. I'm not, I'm not a, attaching some nefarious motives to this. There can be all kinds of reasons as to why our memory gets muddled. It's just part of being human. I mean, there are, there are factors that, that complicate it. Uh, sometimes the critical words of a, of a significant other will taint your memory. Sometimes a past hurt is, is rerun so many times in our heads. We become tethered to that event and we interpret information through the lens of that hurt or failure. What I'd like for us to do is to allow the truth of Scripture to shed some light on this subject. The Apostle Paul, we know him, we, and we know what he was like before he came to Christ, right? I mean, he led a religious life, Saul did, but he was also very violent, right? I mean, he... He grabbed Christians and he either had them killed or thrown into jail. That was Saul, right? I suppose if PTSD were a thing back then, Paul would have probably been a prime candidate because of his memories of all the violence that he was around and that he caused. But then he came to Christ. So... How is he to assess himself as a man, as a Christian, especially in light of his service to God? He kind of lets us know about this. In 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 2 through 4, it says this, Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. But with me, it's a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any other human court. In fact, I don't even judge myself, for I am not aware of anything against myself but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Now, yes, Paul was in the context speaking here about evaluating himself and his relationship to the gospel and expanding the gospel and ministry. I get that. But he says that the two sources of reality that can get you into trouble if, if these trump everything else, what is it? It's the words of other people, and it's our own self-evaluation, just left to self. I mean, the words of other people can kind of play in our heads to where we believe the press or we believe the criticism, and it sticks like super glue to our brain. And then there's what I remember when I evaluate myself. Paul says, yeah, you know, I, I did do some nasty stuff. Can't deny that. But there is a higher law in operation here. There's the grace of God that provides forgiveness in my life. There's the fact that I've been justified in Christ and, 
these evil things that I perpetrated are no longer held against me. Therefore, I'm not aware of anything against myself. So in other words, what God said about him superseded what others said or even his own self-evaluation. I am forgiven. I am a child of God. I am loved by God. And God has given me a responsibility to fulfill as as a Christian, as a, as a father, as, as a husband. I also think of James chapter 3, verses 5 through 6. It says that the tongue is like a forest fire. It can burn down a structure. It can set a course of destruction. Relating that back to what Paul said in 1 Corinthians There's an acknowledgement that the words of others can cause destruction. The words of others should not be the fountain that feeds our souls, even though there can be encouragement found there. But forest fires, they need to be extinguished, not entertained. We would be wise not to have our own self-evaluation or our words, the words of others, outweigh what God says about our true state. I mean, if we can't accurately remember all the details, it would seem that our own self-evaluation might be an inexact science, right? I mean, does this mean that we just throw our hands up and say no knowledge is possible? No. The philosophers of old did that, but the fact is we still know there was a 9-11. We still know the Space Challenger crash. We may not remember every detail about where we were. That gets muddled but we can be sure of some of the major facts. So knowledge can be known. But there's also one source who sifts through all of this mess, who judges our hearts, who can sift through the motives, who can make things straight. He defines reality for us, and that's God. One source. He is truth. Jesus defined himself as truth. Jesus is the one who bears witness to the truth. So there is a fountain that men can go to that has living waters that can fill the soul, that can set us straight, that can give us truth, that can tell us the true reality of things in a world in which it's all messed up. So we have to learn to feed our heart on the truth of God's word. We have to learn to embrace the comfort of the Holy Spirit if we expect at all to raise our batting average. This is a Father's Day sermon, so I will give sports illustrations. Sorry, ladies. Batting average. First down. Dunk, whatever metaphor you want to use. I mean, listen, it's too discouraging or deceptive to measure ourselves by our own performance. It's too hard to operate in this world and hear the barrage given against masculinity without some encouragement from other men. I mean, when are men going to quit apologizing for liking guns or sports or fishing or hunting or whatever it is you're into? It's really okay. It's too lonely 
to go without intimate relationships within the family and, and with friends. I mean, trafficking these waters, it feels like a battle. And you know what that tells me? That tells me that the church is not a cruise ship with endless entertainment. It's an outpost for us to get ready for our next skirmish. It's a boot camp. It's a battleship. I mean, I got to get ready. I got to get prepared. I got to get equipped. Here's another truth check. After Adam and Eve sinned, we read this in Genesis 3, 8 through 13. I mean, this is, this is pretty good stuff about how not only men and women relate, but how men relate to God. And they, they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden. I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman who you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree and I ate. Then the Lord said to the woman, What is that that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me and I ate. I mean, there are, there are problems that seem to be ingrained in humanity since Adam and Eve. It doesn't take a Bible scholar to figure this out, that we are prone to blame. And we are prone, and I'm speaking to men here, right? We're prone to isolation, to hide. Add on top of that that there is a devil who twists the truth. There is a culture who is not exactly waiting for us to figure it out. It's busy redefining personhood. Telling human beings, you have the right to redefine what a person is or what a male and a female is. All this separate from God. But in the face of this, I want to suggest that the Bible offers a pathway for manhood. And we have talked about this before. I'm not going to go into great detail. And these aren't my points. Uh, these come from Robert Lewis and his writings on manhood. Anything you get by him on manhood is great. I would suggest Raising a Modern Day Knight. Great book if you have sons. But here's, here's some of the stuff. The four points about manhood is what... Being going from a boy to a man, what a man does. Men reject passivity. Men accept responsibility. Men lead courageously. And men strive for a greater reward. That's what men do. Reject passivity, accept responsibility, lead courageously, seek God's greater reward. Now, we see men all through Scripture that depict this, but we see men also that are complicated. Moses murdered someone, and he's called the most humble guy who walked on earth. David also committed adultery, set somebody up to be killed, and he's called a man after God's own heart. Now, I'm not justifying the sin. The fact is Moses and David paid dearly for this, did they not? I mean, David's family was a train wreck. 
Moses was not allowed to enter into the promised land, right? But my point is, even though they failed, and we all have failed to one degree or another, God still used them. Several years ago, you may remember, I got all four of my kids up on the stage, and I asked them a question, and they had to answer honestly. I didn't know what they were going to say. I said, tell me the biggest mistake I made as a father. And the reason I did that is because I wanted all the men in the audience to know, look, I screwed up, but they're still standing. They're still alive. They're still breathing. We still have a relationship. And every family has failure. But every family, if they want to succeed, dads need to get up. Dads need to forgive themselves and enter back into the relationship in a healthy way. God does not give up on us because we fail. God did not give up on Moses and David. God still used them. Man, God wants to use you and the memory of your failings, which isn't completely objective, is not the final word. I mean, all of us as men have stood in the batter's box, and all of us have men, as men, we've been beamed on the head by a 95-mile-an-hour fastball. That's what it feels like sometimes. I get it. And listen, I stand up here not having all of my problems in the past as a man, as a perfect pastor, giving you nice and tidy, sanitized illustrations about what it means to be a man. The fact is, I'm in the middle of it as well. Janet and I were in St. Louis last week for a couple days, taking our son to the airport and driving back. We were talking about my reactions to her that I can't always explain. I say things and I react sometimes with an agitation that I can't relate it to a specific event, and I don't know why. Any guys relate to that? What is that in us? We're flawed. Now, I want to know, and you're probably thinking, well, man, you need therapy. Well, probably so, but the fact is we are all shackled by our own flesh. And we all live within a world system that works against us. And we live in the midst of a devil and his minions who work against us. That's a very real thing. But I want to just sound a clarion call that, men, you are not alone. That we have a rock who feeds our souls. We have someone who reminds us that we are forgiven, that we are embraced by our creator. We have other men around here in this fellowship who care, who've been through similar circumstances and can cheer you on. We have a community you can enter into, like with life groups, where you can get on this journey of relationships that are not fake or sanitized. And we have opportunities to give our lives to something greater that impacts the kingdom of God. Our time is not our own. And we can make a difference by addressing social injustice and poverty and the race issues of our culture and in our community. And our church has many outlets in which you can do that. Our treasure is not our own. Our money is not our own. And, and we have the opportunity 
to give regularly and sacrificially toward the kingdom. Our talent is given to us by God. And we can serve and see others equipped in this boot camp we call a church. I just want us all to be aware of the forces that work against us. But I want to acknowledge that I'm in with it, that I understand. But I also want us to be aware of the opportunities that are in front of us. We have to get up, stand a little straighter, be aware that there's a God who sees and understands us and provides for us. And I want you to understand that, that when you fail, you're not defined by that failure. That you're still a child of God. God loves you. God has a purpose for your life. And it's a good thing to embrace yourself as a man. Hey, listen. You know, the Bible talks about a cloud of witnesses. There is a cloud of witnesses around you that are cheering you on. And they want you more than anything to succeed. You know who they are? They are children who want nothing more, whether little children or adult children. They want nothing more than to be connected to their father, who is not perfect, but who humbly acknowledges his failings. And you know what? They love it when you do, when you acknowledge your failings. They know you're not perfect. They're readily aware of it. They like to know you're living in reality when you acknowledge that. There's others in this cloud of witnesses. There's a wife who wants desperately to walk with intimacy and healthy relationship with you. There are friends and family who, who desire to have loving and courageous men in their lives if you're a single man. The point is you simply start where you're at and you take your swings.